chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Uh, so the last week has not been good. It's been sad and bad and terrible in, uh, in ways that are not uncommon in this country of ours. So this week, because of everything that has happened, we're going to celebrate some Asian joy today. That's what we're here to do. Right, guys? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was very happy that, that this is the movie we're covering this week. Because it's just so delightful. It is. It's like purely joyful. And it's funny because people might think we're lying about this, but we actually had always planned on finishing the month on Always Be My Maybe because it is a favorite of all of ours. Uh, and it's just uh, especially important, I think, this week to talk about this movie that we all love uh, for so many reasons, but in part because of representation, because representation matters. Absolutely. And this week, because we always bring her on when we talk about our favorite movies, <laughs> we've got Maida joining us in the studio. I'm only here for only here for the good movies. I peace out pretty quickly when we talk about the bad ones. Uh, well, Janelle, do you want to tell us uh, a little bit about what we're going to talk about today? Yes. As I previously mentioned, the film that we are talking about this week is Always Be My Maybe, the year Ooh. of our Lord 2019. God, that feels like a long time ago, <laughs> even though it was only two years ago. Ah, so sad. Oh, God. The so lives we have changed. lived since then. <laughs> the the we have aged we have aged like a fine cheese in that time um <laughs> or like a really right. smelly cheese yes. a really smelly cheese like that french cheese you can't import to the u.s that has like maggots in it that's what we're rocking <laughs> oh. right now um on that note here's your google summary <laughs> Childhood sweethearts have a falling out and don't speak for 15 years, only reconnecting as adults when Sasha Tran, played by Ali Wong, runs into Marcus Kim, played by Randall Park, in San Francisco. Although the old sparks are still there, the couple lives in different worlds. That is what Google says this movie is about, not that we really need to know. But uh, what is Always Be My Maybe really about? Um, I would say that it is about two young second, possibly even third generation Asian American kids growing up in San Francisco um, who kind of bond over their parentage and food. And then they have this falling out and they come back together and rediscovering their like strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that as I was rewatching the movie this time around really struck me is that it is important to the movie that these two characters are Asian and it is important to the movie that these two characters are American, right? Like yes. both of those are important parts of their identity. And I feel like a lot of times, especially with big Hollywood movies um, that are about people of color, the um, the tendency is to make them very token and make it about people who are fresh off the boat or make it about people in you know countries other than America. And this really had value I think within the rom-com genre as a movie about Americans who grew up in America and grew up in you know a big city in America and have American cultural touchstones but also have specifically Asian cultural touchstones that are important to them and their family and their relationship with each other as well 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, as someone who is second generation, there are very few movies about what it is like to be second generation. And I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think this movie, like, that is not the purpose of this movie necessarily is to address the fact that they're like second, third generation Asian Americans, but it is inherent to who they are and you get to see those parts, which I think is really cool. I really think it's, I think it's fun also to use the phrase fresh off the boat because the director of this movie, as well as Randall Park, as well as the actress who plays his mom, Judy, are all in the TV show Fresh Off the Boat, which is a fantastic TV show. Um, so it's fun that they, they made that TV show, but then they've come over to this and done something very radically different. Mm-hmm. And Ali Wong is one of the writers on Fresh Off the Boat too, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I guess four people, if not more. <laughs> she's such a phenomenal comedian and writer. Um, I just, I think that she is such a fresh voice and I love hearing it. Um, and I like, you know, that it's quite different in, say, this movie than it is in Fresh Off the Boat or than it is in her comedy specials. You know, you can tell that she can address a lot of the same issues with different voice and style depending on the medium. And I love that. I think when rewatching this, that was something that struck me is that uh, unlike some rom-coms that kind of rely on one or the other member of the usually heterosexual partnership to be the funny one, like Mm -hmm. oftentimes it's the woman who's like this quirky, funny girl, or it's the guy who's sort of the quirky, funny loser and the woman is sort of the cool, straight man. Mm -hmm. In this case, you have two exceptional comedic talents as the leads mm-hmm. and neither one of them is playing straight like they're both right. getting to play character roles and to really show off their comedy chops but not but not in sort of the classic like slapsticky way like it's very much mm-hmm. a comedy of of dialogue and a comedy of uh what's the word what's the term for like a comedy of plot anyway Maybe the French don't have that. But anyway, it's it's not it's not like uh you're a comedy of manners, which is usually what romantic comedies are. Like someone mm-hmm. fails, someone fucks up. Instead, it's like very situational. You get to really see yeah. them at their peak. Right. That's great. Well, what's fun is also that the woman who plays the friend Veronica, she's also like a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I feel like this movie is just full of people getting to play really comedic roles, but that blend well into each other. So yeah. in some way I'm like, where is this straight man? in this mm-hmm. movie like i feel like the only pe- like people who are playing like the straight man characters are daniel day kim and then mm-hmm. uh randall park's father yeah like, the parents the, <laughs> the parents, parents are kind of the straight characters to well, play off of and ali wong's ex-boyfriend right like he's very yes. serious yeah. um, and that kind of makes him look even more serious because everyone is a little bit sideways in this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> except yes. for him but yeah i agree the comedy is not really at the expense of any one character um, and in fact, the places where often in the sort of traditional modern rom-com um, style would be at the expense of one character, there's always sort of surprising little twists that make their partnership, I think, much more equal in the way it's presented in the movie. You know, he's she's famous and wealthy and a successful, you know, celebrity chef. And he's just like some guy who still lives at home and hasn't really made it big in his life. And he's got like a local band and you think, okay, she's going to like go to his concert and roll her eyes that he's still performing with his high school band. And she goes and she's like, Oh my God, I still love your music. You guys are so great. And then she really wants him to work to like expand the band. Cause she thinks they're awesome. And it turns out he does love his music and he really likes doing it. And like that alone is such a refreshing twist because in so many other movies, it'd be like, and he still plays his guitar in his garage and his underwear. Mm-hmm. What a loser. And that is not how he's depicted once you get into the movie. And I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, it's nice that they they don't demonize him for this like mm-hmm. staying at home idea. They kind of they're just kind of like you know it's okay to like your home and want to be at home mm-hmm. and be close with your family. Because um, they do some interesting things with like relationships with families that I really mm-hmm. like. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that they they don't they don't make him a loser because also there is a thing about in different Asian communities it's not. It's not seen as like a bad or shameful thing to live with your parents up to like a certain age. Like, it's just something that's done. So I like that they don't like. It's not a joke that he lives with. Me. No, in right. fact, I didn't even remember that as part of his like character arc until this second watch. Like, I was like, oh right, he lives with Mr. Kim still. Oh mm-hmm. okay. And it wasn't until pretty far into the movie that I realized that. That's how yeah. underemphasized it is. Right, like his father is not trying to... Because I feel like in a lot of these movies, like, I don't know if you guys have done Failure to Launch on this Mm-mm. podcast. Oh, but, no, but we should. Oh, that one is <laughs> rough. But, like, that's, like, parents are really trying to push their kid out of the home, you know? And mm-hmm. that's, that doesn't tend to be uh, a big theme in Asian households, speaking of children and Uh but so I like that they don't have like Mr. Kim being shoved out of the house because that wouldn't really be happening most likely. It's more about mm-hmm. him facing his fears and not using his Halloween excuse not to go than his mom right. trying to actively like kick him out of the house. Mm-hmm. Right, and even a lot of the reasons that he stayed behind are sort of um, they're shown in a positive light. I would say, you know, I mean. Ultimately, they decide that he needs to, you know, be a little braver and and step out of the nest. But he stays behind because, you know, his father has lost his wife. And so he wants to stay behind and support his dad. And it's implied that his dad has some health issues that he's been helping with. And he's an active participant in his partnership in the business with his father. You know, it's not like he's just like leeching off his dad's money or anything. It's shown that he's a fully functional adult, just one who's made different decisions than Ali Wong's character has. And meanwhile, she, on the other hand, is also, you know, he gives it to her just as good as she gives it to him, where he's like, yeah, you went off and became successful and stuff, but all of your memories of home are now terrible because you've convinced yourself that you don't want to come back here, and that's not good either. Yeah, it reminds me that uh, it has a very similar undercurrent to one of my favorite parts of Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, I have to bring up in conjunction with this movie, but one of my favorite quotes from Crazy Rich Asians is that um, I think the grandmother says that when you leave home, you begin to forget who you are. She says it's mm. dangerous for children to leave home for too long because they forget who they are. And I kind of feel like that's part of this too, where the big the big kind of speech that Marcus gives to Sasha is about like, like you said, you've made everything terrible. Like the memory of this place is so bad. Because of that, you've forgotten who you are, and that's when he accuses her of being inauthentic, which is both like fair and unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does make her rethink everything, which is why it's that you know beautiful moment at the end where she goes back to her roots and remembers that she learned cooking from Lizzie Bird, right? And she remembers a little bit more of who she is by remembering where she. Is. Yeah, I think there is there's a cultural difference in the way that that kind of growing up and becoming your own person is talked about, especially you know through media. But I think in in kind of like white Anglo-Saxon Judeo-Christian tendencies, uh, cultures, there's a tendency to talk about being like a self-made man, a self-made person. And that often as a result then ignores the familial and cultural and traditional elements that go into creating a person's personality, as opposed to in a lot of these movies that are now being made by um, by Asian Americans, by Asian creators, I think you see more of that cultural tendency to talk about 
the family and the ancestors and the culture and how that creates a person. And it's, it's just a different way of looking at it, but I think they're both valid and it's nice to, you know, see this being put onto a, a broader, you know, sort of cultural stage to be talked about. And that's why I think Sasha's plotline is so beautiful with regards to food and her becoming a chef is that we see that, that great shot of her in the early parts of the movies when she's a girl and her parents are away working, she's all alone and she's prepping some like spam and rice for herself. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's her food career ends up being such a beautiful expression of both like the person that she had to become because of her, for because of how she was raised, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also like a reflection of everything that she learned from, you know, Mrs. Kim from Judy, um, and also everything that she just absorbed from growing up in Chinatown in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. I love that the film is using food in that way. Like so many of the other food movies we've talked about this month have looked at cooking as a way to be sort of successful, as an expression of creativity, as a kind of rock star identity. But in this case for Sasha, it's like her career, it's her expression of creativity, yes, but it's also like such this deep connection to who she is as a person, mm-hmm. which I think is really powerful and not something that always comes up in these uh, food, food-themed food movies. Yeah. And it's also interesting because it's almost her way of like, that that scene back in like the 2003 portion where, you know, Judy has just died and uh, Randall Park's character is grieving for his mother and he kind of yells at her and says like she wasn't your mom like you don't you don't yeah. feel the same way that I do because she wasn't your mom and I feel like she kind of takes that and uses food as her way to kind of like grieve and cope mm-hmm. with the fact that this person who taught her to like love food and to cook and everything that became her way of dealing with it yeah I know I always like seeing representations of sort of found family um, and in this, you know, it's, it's two families that have found each other. Uh, there's still, you know, like she still has to come to a reckoning with her own parents and stuff. But I like that the movie acknowledges that this, you know, this adult woman who was a part of her life, but not her actual blood relative, still had this huge sort of familial effect on her. I mean, I grew up in an area where we did not live near any of my actual family when I was a kid. And so my parents, you know, gave us a found family with their friends who were local and with our friends and we you know created our own holiday traditions and stuff like that and that's so important to me just as important to me as the traditions that I have with like my grandparents or my aunts and uncles so it's nice to see that represented too that kind of understanding that like your parents are important but other you can have other parents in your lives who also affect you and who you also want to learn from and respect and honor as you go on and I like that they don't demonize her parents Mm-hmm. You know, they don't mm-hmm. say like, oh, shit, they... It's, it's a lot about Sasha's perception of what happened. And it's also the story yes. of a lot of second-generation children who, who do have to, you know, work in restaurants or stores where their parents work or who do have to take on different forms of adulthood really early, mm-hmm. you know? And so she says like, oh, you used to leave me home for an entire day. And it's kind of... It's very clear that a lot of her independence and her fearlessness is because... You know, she had to do a lot of stuff really early. Um, yeah. and she had to learn how to be on her mm-hmm. own. Um, and she does resent it. And it does kind of uh, cause her to have a kind of slightly strange relationship with her parents. But I love that it kind of comes full circle at the end where, you know, her parents and her do kind of have a conversation about it. Maybe not like a super long in-depth one. But they don't demonize her parents for it. Like, they did what they had to do. And, you know, that's, that's just life sometimes. 
the screenplay does a really important thing with that where they have the scene where her parents are throwing a birthday party for their godchild who's the child of her cousin um and they show that her parents are like lavishing over this kid and like really loving and affectionate with this kid uh and sasha's perspective on it is like wow like so great for this kid but like i didn't get any of that just because now my parents are at this like different stage of life where they can where they have the Mm -hmm. freedom and the flexibility and the money to lavish over a kid like this so the the screenplay makes a really smart move there in order to show that it's not because where you know where stereotype might make you push into this idea of like unfeeling parents distant parents working all the time right it's more complicated than that it's about timing Mm -hmm. it's about money it's much more complex. I really appreciated that too. Oh, I, I really right. do too because I feel like that that stereotype of the like unfeeling, like really tough Asian mm-hmm. parents is just like it's very inaccurate, um, and it's very frustrating to kind of have that pushed upon you. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm glad they kind of like fight that idea. One of the ways that they address it, as they do with so many things in this movie, is with humor as well, right? Like there's you know at that birthday party, there's a couple references to the parents kind of going. <laughs> over the top and overboard mm-hmm. now that they have the ability to do this and you know they get things that wouldn't necessarily be like right for an eight-year-old's birthday party but they're really excited to do it because they can and and at the end when they come and they sort of have their their reconciliation um they you know they've been joking throughout the whole movie that her parents never tip never spend more than they have to you know all these things that clearly came from a time when they really had to be careful with money but they still do it in a way that she finds very embarrassing and so they show up and they went to her restaurant and they didn't tell anyone they were her parents so they didn't get a discount and they paid full price and they got extra shrimp and they bring her the receipt and like it's a funny scene where she where she they tell her this and she's like oh what like that's the big surprising moment and it's a genuinely sweet moment but it's also very funny and that makes it feel much more lighthearted and much less like they're you know criticizing these parents for the way they behaved which makes it just so much more joyous when they have this reconciliation and speaking of humor are we talking about keanu Can I also say that I love that you can count the um, white characters in this movie on, like, a single hand. And also, I'm pretty sure Keanu Reeves is, like, one-fourth Chinese. So it's also kind of amazing that, like, even the person who is, like, the quote-unquote, like, main white character is actually, like, partially Asian-American as well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I absolutely adore. (laughs) Well, and Ali Wong has talked about why they cast Keanu Reeves in this because she was like, I wanted this character to be the you know, internationally recognized Asian celebrity that would make, you know, the other character just horrified to be in the same room as him, right? Like, this is your worst nightmare if you're trying to woo mm-hmm. a woman. And then, like, who would be the worst person to walk in as her date? Keanu Reeves. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she talks about being a kid and, like, when he was in Speed, everyone she knew who was Asian was like, oh, my God, did you know he's part Asian? And he's this, like, action movie hero. Like, it was a huge thing for her yeah. as a kid. And so yep. to then get to cast him as her romantic lead in a handful of scenes, oh, like, what fun and what joy to, like, have achieved the ability to do that. I also just love that, like, every Asian American knows that Keanu Reeves is one-fourth Chinese. Like, we all <laughs> know it because we're so proud. Like, it's so funny. Like, that shows you also how little representation there has been for so long mm-hmm. for Asian Americans to have, like, really great, like, leading characters that, like, everyone knows this about Keanu Reeves. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just very funny to me. Yeah, but also because I feel like the other privilege 
would be to have like Daniel Day Kim, right? But <laughs> right. he's already in the movie as her exactly. other boyfriend, which is so excellent. <laughs> right, like these are like the two guys that would be like the worst nightmare for your, you know, Asian high school boyfriend to see you now dating. <laughs> Yeah, Daniel Day Kim's character in this movie is the worst in a variety of ways. Like, I don't want to spend that much time talking about it, except for just that, like, oh, my God, I feel like every successful woman has dated a guy like this (laughs) who just wants to date you as, like, the checkoff box and, like, Mm -hmm. ugh, ugh, gross. Anyway, Keanu Reeves. (laughs) So one of the things I think that is great about the screenplay with Keanu Reeves is that It's leaning so hard into like Keanu Reeves playing a parody of Keanu Reeves that is just so gorgeous. And it's hilarious because they like really push how he has this sort of mystical quality to him. And in part that's because of how much he's suffered, but it's also because of how like vague he can be about his own spiritual beliefs, but he sort Mm -hmm. of has this sort of like aura about him to people. And the fact that they just like lean into that and make him this absurd sort of like neo parody Jesus figure who is also (laughs) out of his mind. It's just a, it's a, it's a comedy stroke of genius. And this is one of the best performances I've ever seen Keanu Reeves give. It is absolutely unhinged. You know, he's having so much fun. And like, and people in Hollywood always say the best thing to do if you have a character who's a jerk is to hire the nicest person in the world to play them. And like, everyone always says Keanu Reeves is so lovely and so wonderful to work with and so kind. And every person who's ever run into him on the street has said like they had a wonderful celebrity encounter. And so to then get him to play this just absolute tool. Yes. It, it reminds me of when um, in that show, Don't Trust the Be at Batman 23, when James Vanderbeek mm. plays himself. <laughs> and it is just one of the funniest things ever is to have an actor play like a parody over the top version of their real life self. Mm-hmm. It's just very funny. In a lot of ways, it's also, I would say, like Neil Patrick Harris playing straight oh. Neil Patrick Harris in um, <laughs> Harold and Kumar, in all the yes. Harold and Kumar movies, okay. um, yeah. which again is that idea of like, let's take this person who is a celebrity and take sort of the things we know about them and then keep all of those things, but just up them to 11 and add in like an extra splash of douchebag. And what a great comedic character you end up with. You know, in this Keanu character, he's got that kind of, you know, stoner vibe thing going on that he as a, you know, celebrity persona has because of his roles in the 90s and early 2000s. But instead of being like the happy-go-lucky cool stoner, he's now this like asshole philosopher bro. And, you know, they've got all these things and (laughs) he's just having a blast. But also I love the way that Jenny reacts to him. Like as soon as I, Jenny just cracks me up, like very funny. Um, but the way that she reacts to him, where she just like cannot take his eye, her eyes off of him, and that line where she tells um, Marcus that she would, if, if she had to kill someone in the room, that she would kill him, and that his what, what did she say? His something, his cultural footprint is smaller. Yes. Oh, like what a roast! What a roast! It's so good, it's right? To be like, we can't kill Keanu Reeves. He's important to the world. And even like Sasha, like literally, their cultural footprint is bigger than yours. I guess you just have to die. Like, whoa. Well, and I feel Gosh. like the character of Jenny and the character of Keanu Reeves are similar, just on opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of the same ways, right? Because she also sort of seems to be kind of full of bullshit she like spouts all these things about helping the world and you know wanting to live her life blah blah blah. and then you've got Ali Wong's character just sitting there being like uh you know that these are Paula Dean plates right 
<laughs> um, you know, and so it's it's sort of fun to see the the like wealthy famous version of that and then the normal person version of that be thrown into a scene together. Yeah, that she's this like over the top like community artist, like very crunchy granola. I'm assuming there are like a lot of people like this in San Francisco and so they're really just like playing on this particular type of person in San Francisco. Also the Asian dreadlocks. <laughs> very, very funny. When he sends her the article about how to get Asian dreadlocks. But just that she's like slightly culturally tone deaf, that she's kind of like right. come full circle, right? With like mm-hmm. being so like over the top, like I'm going to be this artist and I work at the community center, but then she kind of comes back around with like, but I steal Paladine plates and I wear dreadlocks. And you're like, I think you've taken a left turn somewhere and you've actually like wound back around. <laughs> right. But I also love that in the end, like, you know, most of the time in romantic comedies where you have this sort of like, oh, one of them has a partner who sucks. So Mm -hmm. they have to dump that partner to be with the one they're meant to be with. In this case, I love that even though Jenny is so ridiculous, she leaves Marcus. She's like, I'm staying to be with Keanu Reeves. Sorry, your cultural footprint isn't big enough for me. So we don't have to deal with a scene where Marcus is like, Jenny, you're weird. I'm rejecting you. No, Jenny gets to reject Marcus and everything is okay. That feels really good for some reason. (laughs) Right. Well, and and that way he doesn't have to cheat on her. Like we don't have to have a moment where we're like, ooh, I feel a little uncomfortable rooting for you right now. Like they both just get shat on at the Keanu Reeves party and then they can go home and have sex together. Yeah, they let they really let the conflict really just sit between Sasha and Marcus because like I, I also it had been a while since I had seen it for this album that just came out. But I also assume that she would have been with her boyfriend Brandon for longer through the mm-hmm. movie. But she actually breaks up with him pretty early on when yeah. there's not when there hasn't really like that spark hasn't really been rekindled between her and Marcus. So there is like no question of them cheating or like either you know, physically or emotionally cheating on either of the people that they are dating in this movie, they really do a good job of, like, you know, avoiding that. Mm-hmm. There's not actually, like, any questionable, like, questionable behavior that happens. And they're not, like, it's not this, like, jumping, right? It's not like, oh, I broke up with my boyfriend so I can now be with a new boyfriend kind of, mm-hmm. like, you yeah. know, not-so-smooth transition. <laughs> yeah, I um, feel like... The movie avoids so many of those sort of frustrating rom-com cliches where you're watching it and you're like, I'm rooting for them, but this moment's really uncomfortable or this, it feels so stupid that they're not together yet. Like it actually gets them admitting they like each other and having the sex scene and getting together about halfway through. And then the conflict becomes about them trying to figure out their relationship, not figure out if they like each other, which is such a more satisfying conflict to watch because when you're watching a movie and you know, both characters are into each other and there's just like, you know, misunderstandings and hijinks that keep them apart. That can get very annoying as you're watching it. And this doesn't have that. You're like, they get that they like each other, but they genuinely have, you know, real life, adult problems that they have to overcome. And so watching couples have much more sort of realistic conflict, even in a, you know, ultimately sort of happy-go-lucky optimistic rom-com is just much more satisfying to sink your teeth into. Yeah, it really struck me that the relationship between Sasha and Marcus is one of the more realistic and therefore one of the more compelling pairings in a rom-com that we've covered Mm -hmm. in the show. And I think you're right. I think it is because it keeps the conflict between them. And also because it's using the convention of the, like, childhood best friends who fall in love thing, too, to, like, 
not make them perfect soulmates, but to actually ground them in some pretty foundational conflicts that they had as mm-hmm. young kids, right? The fact that they had these very different families and that Marcus has this sort of resentment around his mom and Sasha and the kind of awkwardness of them losing their virginity together. It wasn't a magical <laughs> night that they wish they could return to. It's like they had sex that in the scene. back of a Corolla with some Parmesan in the dashboard, you know? <laughs> He's just like, yeah, I've got Parmesan in my in my trunk. Like, what? It's like, is that true? Why do we never get an explanation of this? <laughs> we want to know more about the Parmesan. But like, I love the exchange after they finish having sex and they're laying there, and she asks him, like, where did you get that condom from? And he's like, oh, seventh grade. And they have this like very realistic, I feel like, post-coital teenage <laughs> conversation where you're just both like suddenly realizing the other one is a sexual creature and you're not sure what to do with it it's kind of like there's suddenly a tiger in the room and it's sleeping but you know it's there and it's weird when when she asks him if he practiced putting condoms on bananas and he goes no i didn't need a banana (laughs) it's brilliant because it's so funny but they're so uncomfortable and the two of them again just having so much fun playing these teenage parts Mm. well and even later on when they're adults you know she's kept this relationship with her high school best friend who he was obviously friends with too but they haven't stayed close but the two of them get along as well you know there's a couple of really nice scenes with the best friend and him i love veronica um veronica's so funny michelle buteau is wonderful she's fantastic um so beautiful she is. Oh my gosh, her hair is incredible. I love her hair. I think she's absolutely gorgeous. You know, and then she gets a whole sort of side plot about her being pregnant, um, and she's married to a woman, and that's just, like, part of the reality of it. They don't touch on it too much. It's It just all feels very sort of natural and real, and in a way that is so lovely and charming and wonderful. It's very, it's very like... Uh... This is this is such a terrible thing for me to say as someone who's turning 30 very soon. But, like, it's such a grown-up. It's such a, like, grown-up <laughs> rom-com, you know? It it's really like, is, though. It's a very grown-up <laughs> rom-com. Because, like Eliza said, like, we're not waiting for the whole movie to someone just admit that they like someone. This is, like... Yes. Actually, what I absolutely love, and I, I think I, like, had to pause the movie last night literally just to tell my husband this. I was, like, can I just stop the movie right now and say, the speech that Ali Wong gives after... Um, it's, it's the night of her uh, restaurant opening. And Marcus is acting like a dick. And so she tells him not to come to the restaurant. And she's like, you're being a downer. And you're being jerks. And don't come. And she storms out of the house. And she's about to get into the car. And she turns around. And it's a very beautiful, like, reverse Romeo and Juliet thing where he's on the balcony and she's down below. (laughs) And she tells him, like, I love you. And it's an amazing moment, I think, because it is a strong speech where she is vulnerable and strong at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's a woman just straight up telling him, like, I am in love with you. I want to be with you. I want you to be part of my life. I want you to come and work with me. But you have to tell me if that's something you want to do. And I think it's an amazing moment because I think a lot of the time in rom-com, that speech is like, the girl is like a bawling mess. You mm-hmm. know? And she's like, I love him. I'm like, what am I going to do? And it's just like very annoying. But she, she, she finds a way to be like emotionally vulnerable, but like, strength in that moment and I think that's why it's so hard when Marcus rejects her because you just feel so on behalf of her I was like how dare you like she looks gorgeous (laughs) she's going to her opening of her restaurant she just flat out told you that like this incredible woman loves you and you're gonna act that way like you deserve every pain you get sir (laughs) Um, so I just I love that moment and it's great because that means that they both get speeches yeah, they both, I mean, Ali Wong is always just very 
non um she doesn't apologize for who she is and i feel like her character while a, a character that is separate from ali wong herself still has that same kind of strength which is nice and then they both get to as you say give their romantic speeches and they both get to make the big romantic romantic gesture you know right like he comes all the way to new york and gives a big speech in front of all these cameras he has his vulnerable moment and she makes this restaurant that's an homage to his mother right and then he has this moment at the end where he's like okay well that trumps my speech you win whatever um and but it's it is nice that both of them have to do the big romantic thing to earn the other one and to apologize and to express themselves they're on much more equal footing than you get in a lot of movies yeah, like I have to I have to give it up to the to the team working on this screenplay for the line, can I hold your purse? I want to be oh, the one mm-hmm. that holds your purse. Fuck. <laughs> yes. Great moments in cinematic feminism. <laughs> right. Well, also, Ali Wong and Randall Park, when they were first developing this movie, they wanted to make, in their words, an Asian when Harry met Sally. And I feel like you can really see the influences of that in some of those big romantic moments and in their relationship throughout, right? Like it's people who have, uh, you know, years long history together who are friends and can be lovers and who have to find the way to do both of those things together. And so it's so much more satisfying at the end because you really believe in the strength of their relationship because you've seen what they've gone through. Yeah, I think that's what makes the ending of the movie so satisfying. I mean, very rarely do I come out of a rom-com feeling like, man, I wonder what that couple's doing now, you know? Like, <laughs> what are they getting up to? And I do. I feel that way after this this movie because they really get you invested in this couple and how they're going to continue to negotiate because there's not even a finality on it, right? Like, at no point are, is this film under the illusions that Sasha and Marcus are perfect for each other you know Mm -hmm. like they're in a relationship where they have to work through things and talk through things because they are all of the things you just talked about eliza and i i think that that is so that's so powerful it's so good especially because uh as you all know my whole thesis is that decades and decades of romantic comedies have maybe ruined contemporary dating and there's a lot to do (laughs) there so this movie's a good this movie's a good you know a little, well, a little bit of lettuce for us. It definitely is good for contemporary dating because the conflict that they have at the end where, you know, these two people have very different like, career goals and, mm-hmm. and, and relationships with their career, right? Like, Sasha is, she is a career woman. Like, she, a career is part of her identity, right? Like, who she is. And for Randall Park, like, and, you know, he, he works for his father and everything, but his band is kind of more what he's doing. But he's a little bit less married to what he's doing than Sasha is. And that's okay, right? Like, to have this partnership where, you know, they're, they're having honest conversations about, okay, like, what are we going to do about your job versus my job? And how are we going to deal with the fact that you really want to be in San Francisco and I have to kind of, like, ping-pong all around the world for my mm-hmm. job, right? So this idea of, like, does he go with her sometimes, like, how does his band fit into this? And I really like that those are real conversations that people, I mean, I, I think the statistic right now about how many couples, like both people have different jobs and those jobs are also in different places is really high. Mm-hmm. Like long distance relationships have kind of skyrocketed in the last 10 years. Or so. Yeah, it feels very modern, very those conversations modern. that they're having and and very, you know, it's it's a contemporary relationship struggle that we're watching and it's contemporary solutions that they come up with as well right like you don't fully know if he's just moving to new york completely or if he's still going to kind of ping pong back and forth a little bit 
she it's implied probably has the money to help him do that if he's willing to make those sacrifices and he comes to the conclusion that he is um you know but he's also talking to his bandmates about performing more in new york and you know right like it's it's a lot of them figuring out where can we make these compromises versus where do we have to put our foot down and that's what a lot of couples are going through right now especially these days with everyone being able to work Mm -hmm. virtually but virtual work still being difficult right like it it's a conversation that I think we're going to see more and more of in movies. And I also just want to throw a tip out there for any aspiring screenwriters that take note of how this movie shows that Sasha is a career woman who's very much married to her career. And yet she doesn't start the film as a lonely woman who doesn't know how to date. Amazing. Amazing how that happens. You don't necessarily need to have the career woman to being single and miserable to demonstrate that she's a you know, high-earning career woman. You don't mm-hmm. have to do that. They do have a brief conversation about, like, her dating, but her difficulty dating comes from the fact that she's been in a relationship for a while, mm-hmm. right? Like, she was engaged and about to get married, and now she's like, okay, well, now what do I do, right? But it doesn't come mm-hmm. from this, like, desperation or or just inherently being bad at. We don't have to sit through a montage of her going out with horrible people. And neither one of them is presented as being like socially inept or, you know, they both, I think, in some ways have a similar problem in their current relationships, which is that they've just sort of settled for what was available to them. Um, You know, her relationship seems like it's the power couple thing. So I'm sure in her mind it wasn't settling, but she doesn't actually have those same kind of feelings for this guy. And obviously he's an asshole. And his relationship is with a woman who sort of fell into his lap and he like is fine with but doesn't seem particularly in love with. But they both like have successful relationships. They both have friendships. They both have friends through their work endeavors, right? Like you, neither one of them are you like, oh, this person needs to be saved. Yeah, well, yes. actually, you know, you brought up a good point because one of the things I do really like about Marcus is that he defends Jenny. Mm-hmm. Anytime someone says something like slightly sideways about Jenny, he's very quick to remind them that she does a lot for the community yeah. and that she's very like socially minded, which I think is lovely because you're right, it does kind of seem like he has somewhat settled for her, but he does respect her and what she does. Mm-hmm. And she's very, he's very quick to remind other people so I really like that it's not it's not kind of a yeah a traditional rom com moment where the other girl is like really really bitchy or really really shallow and he doesn't really like her anyway and is kind of mean to her because of it like he's never mean to her if anything he's right. against her which I think is most yeah his character is just so lovely and endearing and you know and his values of family and connecting with your roots and of being happy regardless of your level of success like are really nice things and you get why Sasha is attracted to those things in him yeah oh also just because you reminded me of this part when you said like he's really he's big on being connected with your roots but I just love the scene where they go to the dim sum restaurant <laughs> and he's Korean I think in the in yeah. the movie he's Korean or yeah. is his mother is Korean but they go to the dim sum place and he's learned Cantonese. <laughs> so he can chat so with the dim sum funny. ladies. And the dim sum ladies are giving him free shumai and they're like, no, you don't get any because you don't speak Cantonese <laughs> to Ali Wong's character. And I just think that that's phenomenal. Like he's so, yeah, he's so entrenched on his, like, not even just his hometown, but he literally says, like, we are famous on this one block. Like he's <laughs> right. so micro like dedicated <laughs> to his neighborhood like his street it's a funny yeah. movie it's a it is very, it's, very it's funny just movie. so funny it's so funny and it's so emotional like i won't lie like when i first saw it when my husband and i both watched it we, we both cried at the end like 
Oh my god, I cried this Absolutely. time. I was like, and I knew it was coming, and I still yeah. she shows up the menu, and I was like, oh my god, it's oh his mom's god. name. Okay, I have a question for you, ladies, about the food. So okay. there's this sort of repeated scene of her preparing food for just herself and as we sort of touched on earlier she like lays it out and plates it nicely and does you know the little garnishes and all that kind of stuff and you see her doing it as a kid and you're like oh that's sad that she's doing it on her own but it's kind of cool that she's learned how to do this you see her doing it when she's alone in her fancy house before deciding like i'm bored and going out and going to listen to marcus's band but it's clearly supposed to in that scene be this like sad thing of like look at how nicely she like laid out this food and she's eating it all alone and one i think there's something romantic about like plating a nice meal for yourself instead of just like dumping it in a bowl but two i never freaking do that like i as a single woman if i'm just cooking for myself am so bad about like actually making a nice meal with multiple courses and nice plates do you guys ever do that for yourself i do i literally did i did that four days ago like <laughs> my husband was gone for the whole weekend and I like legit made myself like the most beautiful dinner and then sent him a picture of it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> made a, I and he love was like, that. Oh my God, what are you eating? And I was like, mm, I have tuna steak. I made two recipes out of my new auto language cookbook. <laughs> I, I was cooking for like two hours just for me. Oh, that's so good. When I'm like truly on my own, I'm like, I guess I'll make some pasta. I get so lazy about it. Oh, yeah. For me, though, it's not even about dinners. And Maida, as someone who lived with me for several years, will tell you this. It's elaborate breakfast. I will make the most elaborate brunch. And sometimes I will do it when it's just me. For example, the last time that I was truly alone in uh, Maida and I's old apartment, I made for myself um, like a, a bourbon maple syrup Hala French toast with salted mm. whipped cream mm. and peach compote. <gasps> Janelle? Yeah, because I'm an absolute food freak, and I admit that. I know. I also encourage people to, like, if you're alone, like, take the time to sometimes just, like, make yourself a nice dinner because you deserve it. And, like, I definitely had the dinners where I had, like, tortilla chips and gummy bears, and, like, that's fine if you're lazy one night, <laughs> but, like, also cheat yourself every day. So, you know, in previous episodes, we've said that movies need to let women woo. I think now movies need to let women woo themselves. Yes. All right. So um, every week we'd like to take a minute to thank our patrons on Patreon, especially our romantic leads, who are uh, Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. Y'all are great. Um, You'll always be my maybe. Um, But also because of... um, Everything that's been happening in the last two weeks and in the last year uh, around uh, anti-Asian violence, we wanted to share some resources. Um, We wanted to shout out a few organizations that uh, can provide help and support to people right now. One of them is the Asian Mental Health Collective. The other is the uh, Red Canary Song uh, group, which is a group of Asian and migrant sex workers who are organizing transnationally. You can find them online and on Instagram. AAPI Women Lead. And then finally, we also want to look at this organization called Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, who are doing a lot of good community work to support people in Atlanta right now. And uh, yeah, I think uh, Eliza and I have decided, I guess I'll say this, we're going to donate our Patreon proceeds to that organization this month, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. So we like them. We're really supportive of what they're doing right now, and uh, we encourage you to do it too. 
Um, and as always, we encourage you to share with us, you know, what you're doing to be active in your community, what groups you're donating to or supporting. Um, we're always learning as well, and we want that education to continue for us and for our entire community. Well, we are ending food month on a delicious, delicious movie that I think we can all agree needs no antidotes. But if you enjoyed this and are looking for more, we have some supplements that we can provide instead. Janelle, what supplements do you have to offer? Oh, okay. Well, um, I have two supplements that I want to offer. I'm really excited because I love both of these supplements so much, almost as much as I love this movie. Um, the first is I want to recommend an Instagram account by um, a sort of Sasha Tran type figure who is a baker instead of a chef. And that is Lauren Co on Instagram. Her handle is Loco Kitchen. Uh, you might know her by her like incredible mind-bending uh, geometry pies, geometric pies. They're absolutely gorgeous to look at. Um, but she's also doing a really cool social justice um, bake sale right now that's going to benefit Advancing Justice Atlanta and um, also some AAPI community organizations in Seattle. So if you're in the Seattle area, I know some of our listeners are, definitely check her out. That's Loco Kitchen on Instagram. Her content is gorgeous. Gorgeous. I also want to, as my second and primary supplement, want to urge you, I'm not even recommending it, I'm urging you to watch the, uh, the I guess it's a 2020 movie, the 2020 Oscar heavyweight Minari, which has been nominated, rightly so, for a million things. Uh, it is written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. It's a basically a semi-autobiographical film about... Uh, a Korean-American family, uh, first-gen parents, second-gen kids who have uh, moved to Arkansas to start a farm. And uh, it brings together so many of the great things that I love about uh, Always Be My Maybe. Uh, it's a food movie. It's very much about farming and food culture. It's about family um, and finding a place in a community. But most important, and why I'm really recommending it, is that it is a portrait of a marriage in a lot of ways. It's really about this couple making it through a very difficult time together and still holding on to the love and respect that they have for each other. And it's just an incredible portrait of love enduring. And Steven Yun is the dad and he's very handsome and stuff. So that helps too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so those are my supplements, Loco Kitchen on Instagram and the gorgeous film Minari. Mira, what do you have for us this week? Okay, so I kind of told you this from when I was much younger that were food movies that I loved, and so I have two. The first one is called The Wedding Banquet, and it was uh, one of Omni's first movies. Uh, it came out in 1993, and it was a co-production Taiwan and the United States. And it's a really cute movie about a gay couple in Manhattan in like 1993 and uh, one of them is from Taiwan and the other one is a uh, white American and uh, the Taiwanese man, his family has been really pushing him to get married and so they kind of, it's a comedy of terrors where he kind of fakes a wedding um, and his parents come all the way from Taiwan and they have this enormous wedding banquet so like, there's a lot of like amazing like Asian food and like creating of this massive wedding banquet that's all for this semi-fake it's really lovely. It's a very beautiful movie. Um, and it's one of Anu's first movies, so you know it's mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, and then the second movie is called Today's Special. It came out in 2009. Um, and it was uh, lightly inspired by Asif Mandi's uh, 
play to go to play called Sixteen Restaurant. Um, and so it's a movie about a um, Muslim American uh, man who ends up. I think he takes over his family's restaurant after his father has some kind of a heart incident. But one of the reasons why I love it so much is obviously Asif Mandi is in it. I think he's phenomenal. Um, but also there's this famous Bollywood actress turned chef named Mother Jaffrey, and she is in it. So it's got some actual like Bollywood actors in the movie. And Mother Jaffrey is also a food icon in India. She's written like a number of cookbooks. My mom has a bunch of her cookbooks. So it's just like a really fun movie. So two different uh, Asian food movies that I kind of grew up with. It's it's funny that you mention um the wedding banquet because my supplement is actually the movie that ang lee made right after that eat drink man woman oh yeah i love that one too i was thinking about that one also but i was like i was like oh no she's gonna have my supplement oh no but no we we just got the two together um eat drink man woman which is ang lee's movie from 1994 is a movie about a family with a widowed father and four adult daughters who are navigating, you know, all of their lives separately as well as together um, in Taiwan. And the father is a successful professional cook, but spends most of his days now at home cooking elaborate meals that his daughters then come home to eat with him every week. Um, and it's, you know, sort of about the the cultural changes that are happening with the times as these daughters, instead of just living at home um, and then immediately getting married, are like going off and living on their own and dealing with their careers as well as with their romantic entanglements. Um, but they all keep coming back together around the table and to deal with food. There are so many just like beautiful food sequences of all of them cooking. Um, I know they had like a whole fleet of professional chefs um, involved in the movie to do all of the close-ups of all of the like fine chopping and all of that because it's you know it's done with such precision and the cinematography of it is so beautiful um, and I think there's a lot both stylistically as well as um, plot structurally that um, I'll always be my maybe actually takes from Eat Drink Man Woman I think that there are definite you can see the influence of it in a lot of the things and it's a really charming movie it's really interesting it's beautifully put together it's very understated but in a way that just soars um i love it everyone should go watch it did we find a stopping place for this episode or should we just let it like <laughs> let it ride <laughs> we're just gonna let it um, ride bye everyone thank you for listening to the rom-com killjoys podcast if you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See you next time.